Welcome to HD Buzzcast, the official podcast of HD Buzz, Huntington's disease research news in plain language, spoken by scientists for the global HD community. My name is Dr. Ed Wild, and I'm in London, England. My name is Dr. Jeff Carroll. I'm in Bellingham, Washington. And in this episode of HD Buzzcast, we're going to be talking about some big clinical trials which have recently finished. It was a slightly strange year for clinical trials news. On the one hand, we had some very exciting announcements of forthcoming clinical trials, which we spoke about in the last episode of HD Buzzcast. However, there were also a couple of pieces of disappointing news from two very large clinical trials. Um, These were both run by the Huntington Study Group, which runs on the opposite side of the pond from where I'm based, so in the US and Canada. And they went by the names of TwoCare and Crest E. And they were both halted after what was called a futility analysis. So what we're going to do in this episode is talk about these two trials, what the drugs were, what the trials were about, and what a futility analysis is, why they stopped, and what this means. So, Jeff, the first of the trials was called Two Care, and this was a trial of a treatment or a possible treatment for Huntington's disease called coenzyme Q10. Talk us through Two Care. So 2CARE was what's called a phase 3 study. Now, this is exciting because it means this was a study that was actually designed to see formally whether or not the drug worked. I think a lot of Huntington's patients and families will be familiar with these small trials which are designed only to see safety, which can sort of seem like they're dragging on forever sometimes. So this was a proper what we call a phase 3 study, which means that it was designed and powered. It had enough people in it to actually tell whether the treatment worked. The treatment was a compound that's been familiar for a long time to the HD community called coenzyme Q10. Now, coenzyme Q10 is a natural part of your cells. It's part of the energy-producing process that your cells use to turn food into energy. So basically, every cell in your body has a lot of this molecule in them already. So why try an HD as a therapy? Well, so cells from HD patients and animal models and so on in the lab are known to have sort of an energy deficit. They seem to have less gas in the tank, if you like. And so given that this molecule, coenzyme Q10, helps cells make energy and HD cells have low energy, it was an attractive idea to sort of bolster energy levels in cells by giving this molecule. Coenzyme Q10 is used widely as a nutritional supplement. So there was a lot of evidence from humans that taking quite a bit of it was safe. So it was a reasonable drug to go after. So there was some early work in animal models and cells in the lab that suggested there was some benefit to HD cells in mice. And so ultimately this trial was launched. So the idea here was that people would take coenzyme Q10, this energy producing molecule or energy helping molecule, and they were taking quite high doses. So this is up to um, 2.4 grams a day. So we should say at the outset, that's an awful lot of any kind of drug to take. Like all trials of this type, there was both a group of people actually taking the compound, coenzyme Q10, and another group taking what's called a placebo, so basically a dummy pill. And that's required. I mean, it's difficult and controversial to take people off of coenzyme Q10 and put them in a placebo group if this compound is available at your local pharmacy or drugstore. But I think the designers of the study did the right thing in actually having what's called this placebo group because without it, you can't be sure the changes you're seeing are due to the drug. It could be some other effect. 
So this is sort of what we call the gold standard. It's a placebo-controlled, double-blind study. So neither the study staff nor the people knew whether they were taking coenzyme Q10 or placebo, and about half the people in the trial were taking placebo. So one other thing to say about this trial is it was huge. The upper estimated enrollment was ultimately over 600 people. So this is amongst the largest trials ever run in Huntington's disease. It started in March of 2008 and had an estimated study completion date of September 2017, which is to say that it was still meant to be running, and we'll come back to why it's not. So that's the basic outlines of the trial. It was a large, properly powered, as we say. There was enough people in the trial to actually tell whether the drug worked or not. It had an appropriate design. It had a placebo, so there was a way to tell whether any benefits that might have been deserved were due to your drug or due to chance. So it was a large, well-designed trial of high doses of coenzyme Q10. So why did it have to be so big? Why so many patients and why such a long trial? Yeah, so this is where we get into math, unfortunately. So it's difficult to tell whether a drug is changing the course of Huntington's disease. You know, Huntington's is this big, complex thing, as everybody who struggles with it knows. People have mental problems. They have problems in their daily life, you know, with driving and management and things like this, it's very hard to say, okay, did this treatment subtly change the progression of disease? And the only way to do that is to get large numbers of people and follow them for a long time, because by the end of that time, you will have noticed a lot of changes in the people with Huntington's disease. We know that, obviously, from both living with HD in our families and also years of study in the clinic. We basically know really well what the progression of Huntington's looks like. And so having a large number of people, you know, one half of whom or one portion of whom are taking drug and one are taking placebo, allows us to compare in really minute detail the rate of progression of HD across these two groups. Okay. So then it was scheduled to run to 2017, but then it was stopped early, three years early, because of what was called a futility analysis. What does futility analysis mean? Yeah, this is a really good thing that the designers and the sponsors included in the trial. So this is what was called an interim analysis. So with a trial this long and frankly this expensive, following all these people all this time and clinic visits and everything else costs a lot of money. It's a lot of resources to run a trial like this. We have to decide, is it worth it? Now, of course, if the drug's working, yes, it's worth it. If it looks like maybe it's not working halfway through the trial, well, maybe we could better spend those resources on something else. So there's a formal process and a mathematical process for looking at the results at a point before the end, what's called this interim analysis. So say halfway through the trial. And let's do the math. Let's say how likely is it, given how well the drug's working so far, what are the chances that it's going to work well enough to convince people, especially people like the FDA in the U.S. or the EMA in Europe that approve drugs, is it likely that it's going to be sufficiently clear that they're going to be convinced? And there's a lot of fancy math that goes into this that is over my head, but at the end of the day, they're able to give a percentage chance and say, for example, there's less than a 5% chance that this trial is going to meet its endpoint. It's going to be convincing enough to get this drug approved. And in that scenario, I think most people would agree that it's probably not worth spending these resources on this trial. Let's shut it down and move on to the next thing. And that's what happened. Okay, so I guess to put it as simply as possible, if a futility analysis suggests that a trial needs to be halted, what that means is that based on the results so far, there is essentially no realistic chance that the trial could have a positive outcome for the drug. Right. And so that's different from not knowing, I guess. 
I suppose there's a spectrum. So on the one hand, it's possible that this interim analysis could have shown that the drug was unexpectedly much better than we thought it was going to be. And in that case, sometimes trials can halt early because the drug turns out to be way more effective than we thought. So that can be one outcome. And then the other end of this spectrum is that the futility analysis says there's no realistic chance this drug is going to be positive if we run the trial for another three years, so we should stop it. And then what would usually happen, I guess, is somewhere in the middle, which is we knew this needed to be a long trial. The interim analysis has said we still can't tell either way, and therefore it's worth carrying on with the trial. I mean, it's important, I guess, to reiterate that this isn't just sort of a money-saving exercise or a can't-be-bothered kind of thing. It's designed only to pick up drugs where it is so very unlikely that the drug will work, that there's no point carrying on, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think for a long time with things like results from various labs and various animal models, you're in this I don't know land, you know, like you could think of the data one way or the other. But this gives a very clear answer. Now we can no longer say we don't know whether this works. It clearly does not, at least under any conditions that are likely to happen. Yeah, and on a practical level, a lot of my patients take coenzyme Q, and I'm sure that many people listening do or will know people who take coenzyme Q. Oh, it's also known as ubiquinone. We should say that. That's one of the other names under which coenzyme Q is sold and marketed. And for those people taking it because there was a possibility it might help, I think it's genuinely very useful information. We can say it was tested in one of the biggest trials ever. It was a really well-run trial, but there was no evidence that the coenzyme Q was slowing down the progress of HD, unfortunately. Yeah, and I think in the specific example of coenzyme Q10, it's actually fairly expensive, especially the doses people are taking. Some other supplements are pretty cheap, but coenzyme Q10 can actually cost people quite a bit of money. And I think it's fair to say if for no other reason than save your money for something more fun than taking pills every morning. Okay, maybe you have some suggestions, but we'll come back to that if we have time on the things that people can spend their money on to have fun. So that was August that 2K was halted. And then more recently in October, we heard that almost exactly the same thing had happened for another trial that was being run by the Huntington Study Group, a trial called CREST-E. So talk us through that one, Jeff. Yeah, so actually quite similar in quite a lot of ways. So again, the underlying idea of this is that HD cells seem to have problems making energy. And making energy is a critical part of what any cell needs to do to stay alive. But it's especially true of the brain cells, so cells in your brain called neurons that send messages to one another. It turns out that that message sending back and forth, that kind of constant chatter that the brain cells in your brain are doing to make everything happen in your brain is incredibly energy consuming. And so every cell in your body needs lots of energy, but neurons need more than even your average cell. So it made a lot of sense that this energy deficit, this problem-making energy was a really good target or a really good process to intervene in to try to come up with therapies for Huntington's. So the same as in Q10, this is with creatine, which was the drug being tested or the treatment being tested in the CREST-E trial. Creatine also was designed to try to bolster energy. So again, it's a molecule that's normally found in your cells. So it's not a drug that was designed by humans and made by chemists. This is a naturally occurring compound. Again, something, at least in the U.S., you can go buy in a supplement store, commonly taken by bodybuilders and other people who do really energy-demanding things. And this was a huge trial designed whether to test this approach to bolstering energy and HD would be useful. Again, lots of hints from early animal work and various lab tests that maybe it could be useful. 
Again, a huge trial. I don't think it ever got reached, but the upper level of how many people could be in it were about 650. Started in September 2009 and ended in December uh, 2014. Was supposed to end in December 2014. So again, a massive trial. Again, a properly designed trial which had the active group, meaning people taking creatine, and also a placebo group. So again, this is the gold standard trial design that scientists are always talking about. This is the kind of trial you need to actually have really precise evidence that this drug works or it doesn't. Again, we should say huge doses. So creatine, as I said, it's not a drug designed by chemists to go into your cells and do something quite specific. It's sort of like fuel for the fire for your cells. And so you need a lot of it to have any effect. So much that people in this trial were going to be trying to take up to 40 grams a day of this drug. Now, normally doses for drugs are milligrams per day or something. 40 grams is an awful lot of drug. But that's what they thought they would need based on their other evidence to see an effect. And so this large, well-designed trial was embarked on to see once and for all, does creatine help the progression of Huntington's disease? And again, it was a futility analysis that led to the early stopping of this trial. So we're in the same situation, I guess, that the results so far essentially were looked at and there was no realistic chance that the trial could have a positive result for creatine if it had been carried on to the planned end date. That's exactly right. Yeah. So two drugs that sort of in separate ways target the same process and interestingly in similar trials were halted right about the same time for the same reason. Okay. And again, I think very useful information for people who are wondering what the evidence is and making these really important decisions at all stages of their life as to whether they should take these supplements and which supplements and what doses. One thing that may confuse people a little bit is that there was another recent news story about another creatine trial, and this was a trial called PreCrest. So this was a study trying to demonstrate the principle of treating what we call pre-manifest Huntington's disease. So that's people who either are at risk of Huntington's disease because of family history, or who have tested positive for the mutation that causes HD. And PreCrest had a slightly special design in that actually people didn't have to have a genetic test and get the result themselves in order to take part in PreCrest. So this was people who don't yet have symptoms of HD or haven't been diagnosed with overt onset of Huntington's disease. They took either creatine or a placebo again, so similar design, but these are people who are pre-manifest. MRI scans were performed to try and pick up on any subtle changes that might be suggestive that the creatine was beneficial because we know that the brain shrinks in Huntington's disease more quickly than it does in people who don't have the HD mutation. Everyone's brain is shrinking the whole time, unfortunately. HD brains shrink slightly more quickly and we can measure that with MRI scans. The interesting results from PreCrest were that the scientists who were running it reported that there'd been a change in the rate of brain shrinkage. So the brains of the people on creatine had shrunk less quickly using a measure called cortical thickness, where you measure how thick the crinkly surface of the brain is and how quickly that's changing. So I don't know what to make of that result, I have to say, because the brain shrinkage was only measured over six months. And as far as I'm aware, no one's actually been able to report successfully that they've measured the brain in Huntington's disease shrinking over six months, the cortical thickness changing over six months. So personally, speaking entirely from my own background as someone who's conducted imaging studies in HD, I have some trouble 
making sense of this report that the thinning of the cortex had changed over six months because we've actually never been able to measure it changing in HD. So measuring a drug effect over six months seems like, well, I don't know, we, I think we have to set the bar pretty high for taking that as evidence that the creatine was making a difference. My personal take-home message from Precrest was, well, this is interesting. And if Crest E in patients with avert Huntington's disease turns out to be positive, then Precrest may give us a basis for then testing creatine in pre-manifest HD. However, now that Crest E has turned out to be negative, personally, I look at the Precrest report and I think, well, I don't know what to make of it because if the positive findings from Precrest were going to mean something for manifest HD, well, I think that means that Crest E then has to be positive because otherwise there's this disconnect between pre-manifest and manifest HD. And I think overall, I think you have to go from the clinical trial based on the patients with early Huntington's disease, over 500 of them, and the creatine definitely didn't work. Yeah, and I think one caution too, and it's certainly something the investigators are aware of, I know, is that one of the reasons people take creatine is because it makes their muscles swell. So bodybuilders love to overdose on it because it makes them look bulkier. And so a very real difficulty when you're trying to do something like a drug trial in Huntington's where you're trying to say, hey, did you make the brain shrink less quickly? A difficulty is that a side effect of the drug that you're testing makes cells swell up, which could make them look like they're not dying or being sort of poisoned over the course of Huntington's disease, you know, suffering from toxic effects of the mutant Huntington gene. So that's a very difficult specifically with creatine, it's a very difficult thing to test to look at brain shrinkage and say, did it go faster or slower? Yeah, exactly. And so I think once again, you just have to come back to, we've done the clinical trial, we've done a huge trial. And unfortunately, it didn't slow down the progression of HD. And these weren't patients with advanced Huntington's, you know, these weren't nursing home residents, these were people with early HD who were enrolled into both of these big um, clinical trials. So I think we have our answer. And certainly, we always need to be very clear, this podcast and HD Buzz in general is not a source of medical advice. You should consult your physician before making any health-related decision. My personal view, well, what I'll be advising my own patients, is that unless they have a separate reason for doing so, I don't think that there is any reason to take coenzyme Q or creatine to prevent or slow Huntington's disease anymore. And the same is true, by the way, of another widely used supplement, fish oil or EPA or LAX 101. Again, there were two big trials going back nearly a decade now. There have been two big trials in Europe and elsewhere showing that fish oil doesn't slow the progression of Huntington's disease. So I personally don't believe that there's any particular reason why my patients should take these drugs. Jeff, you're a scientist and an HD family member yourself. What's your position on taking these or other supplements? Yeah, I think with my scientist hat on, I can't say anything except for what you just said. You know, I'm not a physician, but I'm a scientist and I know how to look at data. And it's pretty clear that these supplements that you've mentioned have been tested in the best way they're ever going to be tested, right? Bigger, longer trials are not happening for these drugs. It's never going to happen. The best evidence we're ever going to have, we have now, and they don't seem to work in people who have Huntington's. So that's my scientist brain. My HD family member side, I have to say, you have this other sort of non-scientific question in your mind, which is, does it make me feel better? Do I feel hopeful because I feel like I'm fighting Huntington's because I'm taking this supplement and I get up every morning and I have my regimen? And maybe there are people out there for whom the hope, whether or not it's based in, frankly, scientific results, is worth it. I think it's not. I think it's better to have real substantial hope based on the best science we have. And I think the best science we have right now says these aren't worth it. And you know, we're sort of kidding ourselves if we take them every day and hope that we're fighting as far as we know. And 
I can't speak for every person, every HD family member. Clearly, this is just me speaking. But I don't take supplements. I'm often asked when I speak with you know other HD families, what do you take? What's your regimen? I don't have any secret treatment. I read about Huntington's disease all day, every day, and I don't take anything. I supposedly eat well. I supposedly exercise. Don't ask my wife if I actually do those things. And that's about the best I can do. I try to get a good night's sleep. I try to kind of take care of myself generally. But I don't take any supplements. I don't think there's any data that any of them work. Furthermore, I think, and I'll turn this back to you, Ed, but I'll just say as someone who's, you know, I don't develop drugs personally. It's not part of my scientific career, but I know a lot of folks that do, and I see how hard they have to work on proving safety and really complicated issues around manufacturing and purity and dosing and all that stuff. And I don't see any of that happening with supplements. And I have a lot of concern about what's in the powders and pills that people are getting from their local supplement store, especially if you're taking 30 or 40 grams a day. To me, my alarm bells go off and I have a lot of issues. So on balance, as an HD family member, I think it's no longer worth it in my mind to take any supplements based on maybe. And I think there's better things coming and I'm sort of saving myself for that. But maybe you can comment, Ed, on what you think about safety of manufacturing and so on. Yeah, that's right. I mean, these things are regulated to some extent. The regulatory agencies draw a very clear distinction between drugs and nutritional supplements, and both creatine and coenzyme Q are classified as dietary supplements throughout the world. Drugs have to go through a very strict process of regulation, and they have to be regularly tested to show that they have the exact amount of drug in the pill and that there's no impurities there. The quality control processes for supplements are much, much less rigorous. And a number of supplements have had to be withdrawn or banned because the companies just weren't good enough at producing the purity that was needed. But even if the drugs are pure, I and mean, even if the pills are pure, I think some of these things do have side effects. Creatine was quite well known because you had to take such huge amounts. It was quite well known for having the potential to cause issues with kidney function and dehydrating people. And certainly I've heard of multiple reports of people who have had problems with digestion, including things as extreme as the bowel becoming obstructed and having to have abdominal surgery to essentially clear out the sort of concrete that can form when a lump of creatine gets stuck in the bowel. So these risks are not trivial. And I think as a doctor, let me be clear, I'm not giving advice. (laughs) What I say to my patients is generally, if you're going to take it, you have to have a pretty good reason for doing it. And what we had before was a suspicion that these things might work. What we have now is really good evidence that they don't. But this sounds a bit doom and gloom, and this is not our usual characteristic sense of optimism. So we've done a lot of cloud. What's the silver lining here, Jeff? What good news can we take away from these apparent clinical trial failures? Yeah, I think point number one is that you can't say these trials failed, right? The drugs don't seem to be beneficial. That's true. But the trials didn't fail. The trials were well-designed. They had appropriate numbers of people. They were, as far as we know, well-run, and everybody was looked after during the trial. They, in fact, were so well-designed that they had this checkpoint, this internal, is this going to happen check, this interim analysis we mentioned. So I think we need to not say these trials failed. These trials succeeded, right? They just showed that the drugs they were testing didn't work very well. But we've learned that we can run trials of this size and recruit and successfully fill the trials of this size in Huntington's disease, that we can get people to comply with taking experimental medicines for this long. I think there's a lot of good out of these trials, and we don't even know all the scientific data yet. So I think it's very important not to say these trials failed. These trials succeeded. 
Unfortunately, the drugs they were testing didn't seem to be beneficial, but that's an entirely different thing. And I think, you know, maybe, Ed, you can comment about the fact that there are more and more targeted drugs that are coming. Yeah, exactly. And so anyone who's heard me talk or watched any of our videos on YouTube will know that I'm going to chip in now with my three-word favorite phrase, science is cumulative, which means every day we know more. Science is about learning new stuff, stuff we didn't know the previous day. And now we know two more things. We know creatine doesn't work. We know coenzyme Q doesn't work. But we know a lot more things than that, in fact. We know how to run these trials. We now have these 1,100 people who have been released early from these two clinical trials, and they can now look into and sign up for trials that are coming or trials that are recruiting now. And the previous episode of the HD Buzzcast was all about trials that are recruiting now or trials that are coming soon. And those trials have a very different feel. So rather than being these sort of nutraceutical dietary supplements that may be beneficial for brain function, if we're lucky, we're now moving into a new generation of drugs that were designed with Huntington's disease in mind. And I think the best example of those would be the so-called gene silencing or Huntington lowering trials, which are designer molecules targeting Huntington's disease aiming to switch off the problem at its root source. And, you know, you can go back to the previous episode of HD Buzzcast or look on hdbuzz.net to find out all about the current new round of clinical trials, which is the start of really the generation of trials designed for HD, which come from all of the understanding that this cumulative nature of science has provided to us over the past 21 years since the gene was discovered. So I am always optimistic my view, and I don't think that's without foundation, I think it comes from having experienced so-called negative trials in the past and knowing that actually that teaches us a great deal about the science, about how to run the trials and stopping a trial early because it can't produce a positive result is a great way of freeing up patients and resources and cracking on with the next generation of trials. Yeah, I agree. I think right now this can feel a little sad and a little down. We all, every person in the Huntington's community wish these drugs worked and we now had a treatment. But I think sometimes it seems darkest before the dawn and these trials had to fail so we could move on to the next ones. And I'm quite excited. I think 2015 is going to be a huge year. They didn't fail, though. He used the F word. <sighs> these See? trials had to produce negative results. <laughs> That's right. And this leads us to something that you recall from the last episode where we invited people to send their questions to podcast at hdbuzz.net. And we certainly would continue to invite people to do that. So if you have questions, send them to us. The most popular question by far was, how do we sign up for these trials that you're so enthusiastic about? So, Jeff, how do people sign up for clinical trials and find out what's going on? I think the important thing is to first say that all of these trials are being run at certain sites and not others. So just because a trial sounds good to you doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be a site near you. And that's just the reality that these are only run at so many sites around the world. Some of them are large trials. Some of them are small trials. The smaller ones obviously are only going to have so many people. And importantly, there are what's called inclusion and exclusion criteria. And that can be quite frustrating. Like I wanted to volunteer, but I was taking some drug that was on the exclusion criteria and I couldn't. And I think that people need to understand that those criteria, the stipulations about what kind of people can participate in the trial, seem kind of harsh, but they're designed to make the trials give clearer answers. And I think people should look at it, not negatively, but just as a way to run a good trial. So how do you know what's happening in your area? Well, the best answer is to be involved with the clinical sites that are around you. A great way to get involved in HD is to participate in what's called observational research. So going into clinics and 
participating and giving information about yourself and your family. A great way to do that now is a worldwide study called Enroll HD. So Enroll, E-N-R-O-L-L dash HD. And if you can go to the enroll-hd.org website, you can find a list of sites around the world that are participating in the study. And by volunteering and being engaged with your local HD clinical sites, I think it's a great way to find out what trials are running locally and have yourself be on the radar of the folks who are probably running those trials. So a great way to get engaged is to get involved in this Enroll HD observational study. And I think it's also probably worth mentioning that even if people find that they don't have the time or the inclination to take part in Enroll, that many clinics and many HD centres of excellence will have their own local database of people who are interested in taking part in studies. If you're in Enroll, those people probably have a head start because that means that the local trial centre will have a lot of information about you, which could be used to decide whether you're suitable to take part in the trial or not. However, many clinics will also have their own local databases. So in some cases, it may be sufficient to say, call me if you have a trial coming up. But I would echo your advice. I think Enroll HD is definitely designed to be, in fact, a tool for deciding which clinical trials people are suitable for and getting those trials enrolled as quickly as possible. So yeah, I would echo your advice. So I think that covers all we wanted to say about those two large trials and about trial recruitment and why trials are run and how these futility analyses work and supplements in general. So I think we'll wrap it up there. Jeff, thanks for joining me. I wanted to close with a quick mention of our music. So the music that you'll hear at the beginning and end of the podcast, and sometimes you'll hear little snippets in the middle, the music was actually specially commissioned and is composed by a contemporary composer by the name of Philip Venables. Phil is a friend of mine and an extremely talented and much sought-after contemporary composer. The quirk about the HD Buzzcast music is that I noticed while speaking to Phil that the letters that make up the expansion in the HD gene, the gene that causes HD, are C, A and G, and that those are also musical notes. So you'll hear people talk about CAG repeats causing Huntington's disease, and that's a reference to our genetic code. I asked Phil if there was a possibility that he could turn those letters C, A and G into some music for HD Buzzcast. And what you'll hear at the beginning and end is the end result of Phil applying his talents to that musical genetic challenge. So we're really pleased with it. And I'd just like to take the opportunity to thank Phil for his awesome work. That's the end of this episode of HD Buzzcast. So goodbye from me, Ed Wilde in London. And goodbye from me. I'm Jeff Carroll in Washington. Send your questions to podcast at hdbuzz.net and we'll catch you next time on HD Buzzcast. Music